Good morning. So, as Martin said, we are in the series on Ephesians, and we are at the end of the series on Ephesians. So, the title of today is Spiritual Warfare, uh, and as you've just heard, there's going to be an extra seminar this evening on spiritual warfare, where Martin will go into uh, some of the details of what's behind, some of the stuff we'll look at this morning, uh, and if necessary, to correct all the things that I get wrong this morning, so you can all report back to me on that. We are in a little while, probably about halfway through the talk, we're going to break into me speaking to watch something on the screen, so that will be exciting for all of you, hopefully. So this morning, we're just going to look at this this section at the end of Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 to 24. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about spiritual warfare? Well, the letter to the Ephesians appears to have been a little bit of a circular. So it was written not just to one church, but to a number of churches and to be passed around those churches. And that was true of a number of letters Paul wrote. Uh, All of them we don't have, um, but this one we do. And the reality is, although in our Bibles we read that it's written to the believers in Ephesus, the truth is that was added later. Uh, Perhaps it was a scribe who couldn't work out why it wasn't written or addressed to anyone and added... Ephesus in, perhaps because he had some evidence that the letter came from Ephesus in the first place. But it's not just the lack of, it's not just the lack of evidence that it was written to someone that gives us an idea that it might have been written to more than one church. Ephesians is quite different to some of the other books and some of the other letters that we read in the New Testament in that it, it covers a huge sweep of theological territory. It has lots of different elements in it and it and it brings them all together. Paul brings them all together in a single view. He brings a lot of his thoughts together in, in this one frame. It's a bit like having a panoramic photograph of all the things that Paul believes about the mission and the plan of God and how we outwork it in our lives. And he, and he brings it all together in one letter. I think one of the other things just to, to think about and to remember is that Paul's letters would have been read out loud as a whole. And we obviously, we break down the letters, we read them in small sections, we delve into the detail. But for the early readers, they would have read the letter as a whole, and they would have read it many times as a whole. And although, some, although it's good for us to break it down and to look at the detail, actually sometimes we can miss out on the integrity and the coherence of what Paul is actually trying to say as a whole letter. And so we can come to sections like this one at the end, and we, we look at it and we think, well, how does that fit with everything that's gone before. But it does fit, and 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 I think it helps us to look and see the whole letter and think, how do these things fit together? Because he combines two apparently very different elements in this letter. But when we understand Paul's life and what Paul went through and the crisis he went through in relationship with some of the churches, perhaps particularly the Corinthian church at the time of writing this, we have a better understanding of how these things all fit together in Paul's mind and in his understanding of God. And in the first half of the letter, there is this amazing cosmic and global vision of God's divine purpose. To fill the earth with his glory through Christ. And for us as the church to be the agents of his vision. It's all about the power and the unity of God, the power of God in the gospel, the unity of heaven and earth, the unity of the Jew and Gentile in salvation. 
And in the second half of the letter, we get to these great exhortations about the unity of the church. The unity of the church through the different gifts, through men and women in marriage, through parents and children, slaves and masters. The theme of unity is what Paul carries right through, and he carries it right through to the end, even in this last section, the theme of unity. And so this last section, far from being an unrelated topic that just appears to have been added, is actually part of what Paul is trying to explain in terms of God's plan in creation and God's plan for the future and how that works out in our lives. It's like it's a deeper reality of what is going on behind the scenes that makes sense of what he has been talking about before. You see, God's kingdom is advancing. And the church is to make known the wisdom of God, Paul says in Ephesians 3, to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. And so there is an expectation that those rulers and authorities will fight back. And there will be spiritual warfare. This is the context of this passage. That we are in the advance of the kingdom of God. We're in advance of the church. And as you and I are in our workplaces, as you and I are in our streets, and we are touching people's lives with the gospel, the church is advancing. The kingdom is advancing. And so the enemy fights back. So in light of all that then, what does Paul say about spiritual warfare? We're going to read Ephesians chapter 6 from verses 10 to 24 for those of you who want to follow along in your Bibles. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Titicus, my dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with undying love. Father, we thank you for your words. Lord, we say, speak into our hearts, Lord, this morning. Lord, bring revelation to our spirits. 
through your word. Lord, let your power come on us. Lord, just as the Spirit has been with us throughout this morning so far as we were wonderfully led into worship, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, will you be with us? Speak into our hearts and our minds now. In Jesus' name. So we are going to look at three points this morning. They're going to come up behind me. Firstly, we are in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war. Secondly, stand. Stand your grounds and keep standing. And thirdly, put on the armour of God. So firstly, we are in a spiritual war. And as Paul writes this letter, Jesus has already won the ultimate battle on the cross. And now the gospel is going out everywhere across the known world. It's challenging the power and the authority of the forces of evil. And communities loyal to Jesus as Lord are springing up across the world. And they're bringing together peoples and communities in a new unity, in a new humanity that we are reading about. And the forces of evil, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are fighting back. And for Paul, this isn't just theory. He's not writing theory here. He is writing from personal experience. And 2 Corinthians 1 probably describes Paul's experience just before he wrote this Ephesians letter. And it says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. For we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. See, we are at war. On the 3rd of September 1939, as we know, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister at the time, made a radio announcement to this nation in which he said, this country is at war with Germany. And when you are at war, everything changes. You can no longer go about your life as you did in peacetime. Things are different. Everything becomes focused on the conflict. It's life and death. It's about the future of the nation. And Paul is highlighting for us that our Christian life is a life of spiritual warfare. We are at war in our lives. See, Peter writing in 1 Peter 5 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We are in a war. See, we have a real enemy, the devil, and he is looking to destroy us or to make us ineffective in our Christian lives. And all those four expressions that we read in verse 12, and perhaps Martin might go into more detail in those tonight, they point to the same reality for us. And that is that our enemy exists. Our enemy is real. Our enemy is the devil and he's looking to destroy us. And so Paul talks about the devil's schemes, the devil's plans and strategies about how to attack us, how to make us weak, how to make us ineffective. See, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. 
Even if people disagree with us, or people oppose us, or even people kill us, which would have been true for the New Testament church, we're not fighting people. We're fighting spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, and ultimately, Satan himself. And sometimes those attacks take the the frontal form through earthly powers and earthly authorities opposing the gospel or opposing the kingdom of God. Sometimes they're more oblique. Sometimes the enemy comes to divide the church, to divide the church theologically or to divide the church relationally. We can see so much evidence of that through history. Sometimes he comes to us as individuals with the age-old temptations of money, sex, power, or pride. Or perhaps subtly he just comes and diverts us to, to invest our primary time, our primary effort into things that actually aren't the kingdom of God. They're not wrong. And so he just channels us away, off to one side, he says, you, you do that, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And suddenly we find ourselves, we think, well, I'm, I was once running. I was once running in faith. I once had my eyes fixed on Jesus and suddenly I realise, actually, I've been diverted. And so sometimes there is the, the, the enemy subtly diverts us. And Paul says we're in a struggle. And the word that he uses for struggle literally means hands to hand combat. We're in hand-to-hand combat. Paul is trying to shock his readers. He's trying to shock us into understanding the reality of the life in which we live. And just on that theme, I want to read you a very brief account of a German soldier in World War I who was just talking about storming an enemy trench. And he says this. He says, I was confronted by a French corporal with his bayonet to the ready, just as I had mine. I felt the fear of death in that fraction of a second when I realised that he was after my life as I was after his. But I was quicker than he was and I pushed his rifle away and ran my bayonet through his chest. My knees were shaking. And later that night I woke up drenched in sweat seeing the eyes of my adversary and I tried to convince myself of what would have happened to me if I hadn't got there first. And what Paul is trying to do with this passage is help us understand that actually we are in a war. And that may have been easier for his readers at the time to understand because they were, in most cases, oppressed by the Roman Empire and surrounded by Roman soldiers, as we will see. And for us, we are quite removed most of the time from conflict. We often don't realise how fortunate we are in comparison to large parts of the rest of the world. We are removed from conflict. And so for us, actually, it's very important that we get hold of what Paul is trying to say to us here. We are in hands-to-hand combat for our lives. It's the enemy or it's us. He's trying to make sure that we are aware of the realities of the battle. Just because we cannot see our enemy doesn't mean our enemy is not real. Just because we cannot see our enemy, it doesn't mean that the impact is not lasting and doesn't have lasting consequences in our lives. We must never underestimate the plans and the strategies that the enemy has and the strength of the enemy in our lives, and it can be very easy for us to do that. And this struggle individually 
and together in community because this, this theme of community runs right through to the end of Ephesians and we're not just in a battle on our own. We're in a battle together. We stand together. And this struggle is in light of all that Paul wrote in the first half or the first three quarters of his letter. The plan and the purpose of God for the world, for the church and for you and I. The enemy is fighting that plan. He's fighting that purpose. And we are God's agents. And so the enemy is fighting us. He's fighting you and I as we go about our daily lives. And so Paul defines our enemy. He defines our struggle. And his instruction to us in verse 13 is this. Put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you are able to stand. So the point of this passage is to stand. That is Paul's theme for this passage. It's for us to stand, to stand our ground, and when everything else is done, to still be standing. That is Paul's aim for us in this passage. See, in that passage we read from Peter earlier, it goes on to say, resist the devil, standing firm in the faith. Restrict, resist the enemy. Do not retreat. Do not give ground. And that comes in the context of us advancing the kingdom. Paul does not have the picture of us carrying in a corner together, surrounded by the enemy. No, his understanding is that we are advancing as part of the kingdom of God. And as we do that, there'll be times when the enemy comes against us and we have to stand. And so the primary cry of Paul's heart in this passage is to stand, to stand firm, to stand our ground, and after everything we have done, to still be standing. And the verb Paul uses for everything that we have done is a verb that was used in warfare. It was the sense of preparation, of training, of strategy, of fighting, and continuing to fight until the war is done. All those things together are have everything done. To stand until the end. The end of a particular spiritual attack, the end of persecution, the end of life. We're called to stand until the end of our lives. But the key thing for us is to still be standing. It's to still be standing. And we're called to stand our ground to the end individually and together. See, Philippians 1 says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. See, being together in heart and mind is crucial. Alone or divided, we are an easy target for the enemy. And so we are fighting together. And Paul calls us to fight in unity. And we're going to see that demonstrated to us in a moment. You see, the historical and the cultural background to what Paul is describing here, his understanding of warfare and armour and weaponry, was the Roman army. And unlike us, he could see soldiers on a daily basis. That was normal life for people in the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers were everywhere. And obviously for Paul, as we know, at one point he was chained to a Roman soldier for many, many months at a time under house arrest. And so for Paul, the Roman soldiers were an ever-present 
aspect of life. And so his descriptions of warfare, his descriptions of armour, his descriptions of battle come from seeing it on a personal level every day. And we need to try and get hold of what he was seeing. And so to help us understand and to visualise what Paul had in mind when he urged his readers to put on the armour of God, we are going to watch a film clip. Because for me, and this has really made quite a big difference to me as I was preparing this, it is sometimes helpful to see what Paul was seeing. To see soldiers in the armour that he was describing standing in battle with arrows coming at them and an enemy running into them. And so we're going to see a small clip that I've cut out. And about 45 seconds into this clip, you're going to see soldiers advancing. You're going to see them put up their shields. You're going to see arrows come and you're going to see the enemy run into them, because that's how it used to work. And this is what Paul is trying to describe to us our spiritual battle is like. So if you can just move on the slide again. Okay, if you press it once more, the film clip will start. So keep your eyes on the soldiers. Okay, it's not started. Okay, let's just see if we can sort out our technical problems. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Okay, sometimes a visual helps, but it certainly helps me. It's kind of frightening. If you imagine yourself being one of those people standing there, it will be very frightening. However well-armed you are, that is, a fright- that is a frightening prospect. And that is what Paul is trying to describe to us. This was how they understood warfare. And this is us. This is us as soldiers of Christ. We are advancing and we are standing and the enemy is running into us every day. The enemy is coming. Every day. And so Paul is trying to help us understand this is the Christian life. And having gone out of his way to shock us and to sort of jolt us out of a sense of perhaps of naivety or complacency, to understand spiritual warfare, Paul says, put on the armour of God. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that we can protect, be protected from and overcome Satan by putting on the full armour of God because each piece 
has divine power to demolish strongholds. And so what are the pieces that Paul describes? Well, the first piece that Paul describes is the belt of truth. Now, what's interesting about the belt is that legally, the wearing of arms in public, particularly a sword, was the, the, the domain of a soldier. Only if you were a soldier could you wear a sword in public. And in extension of that, the belt to which the sword was fastened became a distinguishing feature of a soldier's outfit. In fact, it became invested with meanness to such an extent that taking away the belt of a soldier in public was a humiliation used by a soldier's superiors as a disciplinary measure. So we have to understand that the belt became an integral part, not just of armour for the soldier, but actually who they were. If you had your belt stripped off in public, you were disgraced as a soldier. And the significance of a belt as a symbol was demonstrated by the symbolic act of Christian soldiers who openly refused to remain in the army by taking off their belts and throwing them on the floor. You see, the belt wasn't just there to pull their clothes together. The belt was a symbol of who they were. Truth is a symbol of who we are. Truth is part of our armour. See, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth represented in Jesus is the mark of a Christian. And from that truth hangs the sword, the word of God. And Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness and obviously the important job of the breastplate is to protect the heart. And biblically the heart means the inner part of the mind or the inner being of a man. And what is in our heart determines who we are, determines who we are as a person. And Proverbs 4 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And so we have the breastplate of God's righteousness, not the breastplate of our own righteousness, the breastplate of God's righteousness over our hearts. See, in Romans chapter 3, Paul said, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the law. But by the righteousness of God, to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. And so for us truly understanding grace, understanding that we stand perfectly for God through grace because we have the righteousness of Jesus given to us, when we grasp that and we live by it, it protects our heart. And Paul says we have feet fitted with the boots of readiness that come from the gospel of peace. You see, the boots of a Roman soldier were heavy-duty, thick work boots. And they had hobnailed soles. They put nails through the soles with a hammer. And so that was their grip underneath. And they were designed so that in a situation like the one you saw just there and they're on broken ground and people are running into them, they can stand without falling over. They're there so that they can stand and keep standing. And they needed boots that could help them stand. And so Paul says that we have the gospel of peace. We have peace through God. We have gained access by faith into this peace in which we now stand, he says in Romans 5. And because we have peace with God through the gospel, we have the firm footing that we need 
to stand against the enemy. We have the firm footing we need to stand and to advance, to stand and to advance. And Paul goes on to talk about the shield of faith and we saw that well represented there. The Roman shield was large enough in height and width to crouch behind, to protect from flaming arrows. It was the first line of defence against arrows and the first line of defence when people run into you. And Paul says to us, engage faith, engage your shield. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. See, Peter says, through faith we are shielded by God's power. And the Roman military had a very effective tactic that made use of their shields, and we actually saw it on that clip there. When the enemies would begin firing arrows and projectiles at them, they would close ranks into what they called a testudo or a tortoise. And the tortoise would be all the people at the side would have their shields at the side, and all the ones in the middle would have their shields over the top. And that is the picture of us as the church. And that is what Paul is trying to explain to us. We are the tortoise. We are the Roman soldiers working together. And we have our shields at the sides. And we have our shields over our heads. And when we work together like that, it is very difficult to defeat us. It was very difficult for any of the Roman, empires, any Roman enemies to defeat them. So we have to understand, actually, we are, we're in a battle. We're not in a duel. I'm sure we understand the difference. When we're in a duel, we are fighting one-on-one with one enemy. When we're in a battle, we are many together fighting many enemies. And Paul is trying to get us to understand, actually, we're not in a duel. Yes, we're fighting an enemy, and sometimes we feel we're in our little world and he's fighting, but actually we are fighting together as an army. And so you are fighting together as a church in this town. It is a battle, it's not a duel. And Paul goes on to talk about the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation protects our minds, it protects our thinking. In Ephesians 1, a few weeks ago, you read this, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. See, we have the mind of Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we need the Holy Spirit to continually work in us, to transform us on a daily basis. But we have salvation. We have the helmet of salvation on our heads to protect us. And the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. It refers to God's written word, the incarnate word, in other words, Jesus, and the spoken word. And in spiritual warfare, the truth of the gospel, our salvation, and what the Holy Spirit reveals to us are a defence as well as a weapon of attack. And we see this when Jesus was in the wilderness and the enemy came and attacked him. What did he do? He responded with the word of God. And we need to get the word of God in our minds. We need to get the word of God in our hearts. If Jesus needed to defend himself with the word of God, how much more do we? There is power in the word. There is power in the word. It is living and active. And like soldiers, we need to train with our swords. Soldiers would have trained for hours and hours, week on week 
on week with their weapons. We're soldiers. We need to train with our weapons. And one of the other weapons we have is to pray. Pray for yourself on all occasions, Paul says, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray for boldness for yourself as you advance the kingdom. Pray for boldness for yourself in your workplace. Pray for boldness for yourself in your street or your community. Pray for all the Lord's people. Pray for your church. Pray for your small group. Pray for your friends. Pray, Paul says, without ceasing because we're in a war. Pray for your leaders. Pray, Paul says, for me. Pray for apostolic ministry because we want to see the advance of the kingdom of God in the world and in our nation. It's great, isn't it, just to pray again for our nation. We've got to keep doing that. God has put us in this place, in our nation, for a purpose. God is still advancing. The gospel is still real and active in our nation, even though sometimes we look out and we think, well, where is it? We need to keep believing. We need to keep being in faith and saying to God, will you move in me? Let's not look around at other people and think, no, God's put me where I work or you where you work. And said, there's the kingdom of God. Let's keep, let's keep asking God to encourage us and to equip us and to fill us with his spirit. Because God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Paul wanted his readers to know how he was and what he was doing so that they would be encouraged. And although that looks again a bit like an add-on at the end, the truth is this is all wrapped up in, in supporting each other and praying for each other. To do that, we need to understand how we are. We need to be honest and open with one another. That's what true community is. Let's make sure as churches that we are true community. We are sharing our lives with other people who know what we're going through, who know our situation at work or in our, in our local area, what we're doing, and are praying for each other. Let's make sure that we are praying for each other in our battles, in our fights. That we are truly standing together. But the weapons we have, Paul says, have divine power to overcome and demolish strongholds. Yes, we're in a battle, but God has given us the tools and the armour and the weapons to win the battle. We're not in the battle to lose. We are under attack. It's not a training programme, it's real, but we have armour and we have the power of God. We have divine power. And this morning we stand in divine power. We are part of the advance of the kingdom of God. We're part of the advance of the kingdom of God in this town, in this county, in our nation. We are part of the advance of the kingdom of God and we will be in warfare, but we have weapons that demolish strongholds. Can we all stand together? I want us to pray together. There will be some of us this morning you are facing particular challenges that are facing particular difficulties. There are issues in our lives. Just while we pray with the band like to come back or some other band like to come back with us. Sing again in a moment. 
But we have an opportunity to let God speak into our lives now. There are situations here in people's lives and we want to pray into them. Circumstances of life, spiritual struggles. There are people here struggling with habits and temptations right now as we stand. There are people here with serious illness and issues in their family right now. I want us to pray for ourselves and pray for each other now. God has given us armour. God has given us weapons. And God has given us authority. There is God-given authority in this room because he's given each one of us authority over the enemy. And so as we pray, we're going to speak on God's authority over our lives and over our circumstances. So I just want us to, to lift our voices together. You know what the circumstances are of your life are, 